Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Tara Barrett. Today I'm in the studio with Heather Wareham. Heather began working as an archivist at the Maritime History Archive in 1977 and has served as the director for many years. In the last decade, Heather has worked to make the collections more accessible to the public by compiling databases of information and publishing CDs, transcribing diaries and other documents, and creating digital exhibits based on the collections. Her research interest is in Newfoundland maritime history, especially marine disasters, women in the fishery, and resettled communities, all reflected in the MHA's current or upcoming digital exhibits. Heather is also a founding member of the Association of Newfoundland Labrador Archives, and in 2013, she received the President's Award for Exemplary Service. Hi, Heather, and welcome to the show. Hi, Tara. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, so just to start off, for those who don't know, what does what is the Maritime History Archive and what do you do? Uh, the Maritime History Archive is um, one of four archives on campus at Memorial. And um, it's been around since uh, about 1977. It was formed uh, by a group of, of people from the history department here and um, who had an interest in, in shipping and the fishery. And um, shortly after the archive was formed, uh, they secured a very large research grant from SHRC, was SHRC at that time, uh, and they wanted to investigate the history of shipping in Atlantic Canada and that would require them to have access to a certain collection of documents which may have been transferred to Memorial before that date. We're still kind of trying to figure that out. Um, anyway, um, a large collection of crew agreements from the National Archives in London were transferred to Memorial um, and the big research project were to be based on those documents. And then, of course, they needed other kinds of documents um, because the crew list didn't contain all of the information they needed for their study. So they needed newspapers and, you know, published sources and things like that. So that's really where the archive started growing in that direction. Uh, so the archive primarily is interested in the history of ships and the fishery. And um, the late Dr. Keith Matthews, who was one of the founders, had an interest in community history in Newfoundland as well. And he came here in the late 1960s and started teaching Newfoundland history courses because that was his PhD thesis focused on the history of the fishery in the West Country and Newfoundland. And being interested in that subject matter, he had his students go out. He had a systematic way of um, doing this as well, uh, having his students collect information on communities that they were from. I should know how many student research papers we have, probably about 5,000. And so those papers were collected in the late 1960s, so we're talking about the area in some or era in some cases before resettlement. These papers would have been written, and um, students, some students, did a really good job of collecting information on their community, and 
um, the student papers were actually used as a basis for the article, community articles, in the Encyclopedia of Newfoundland Labrador. So I'm, I'm really sidetracked here, but the archive has two primary uh, collections there. It has the Newfoundland community records and business records, and then it has this large collection of crew agreements um, from the National Archives. And how did you end up at the archive? Where, where, what is your background and how did you end up at the Maritime History Archive? Uh, I was a, an art student at Memorial and I got a summer job working as a research assistant with um, the archive. Then it wasn't really the archive, it was called the Maritime History Group. And I really liked the work I was doing and after I graduated and this big research grant came along, they had funding for some longer term positions. And I got one of those and I worked on that project for about two years. And then after that, I actually went to work in the archive on a long string of contracts and eventually got the job as the archivist there. And uh, I know from your bio you said um, you do different uh, digital exhibits. So what are some of the different div digital exhibits that you guys have been developing? The biggest one we've done uh, is is on resettled communities in Newfoundland. I was, um, when I was a very young child, I was resettled from an island in Placentia Bay into Arnold's Cove, so it's always a subject that's been uh, of great interest to me personally. And it, it's also something that um, we found there was a lot of researchers looking for information and there wasn't a whole lot available. So. Uh, we thought would be a good idea to do a virtual exhibit on resettlement and we got money at the time from Archives and Library Canada and we were able to send a researcher on the road um, with a scanner because we knew people wouldn't want to give up their their personal photographs from the resettlement era so we sent him on the road for oh three or four months he went all over the island and he scanned all these images and brought them back. So we put those up, wrote little histories of the communities, and what we tried to do was show what life was like in those communities before resettlement, and then what the communities looked like after. That's one. Uh, another one is, um, I'm still working on this, I'll be working on this forever, is the Pollocks and Truxton disaster. Um, and I don't know what you know about that, but these are two American naval vessels who were wrecked uh, near St. Lawrence in February of 1942. And there was 203 American soldiers drowned. Um, but there was also a, a much larger number of men on board the vessels. Uh, and there was a major rescue effort involving the communities on the Murren Peninsula. So we got asked by the St. Lawrence uh, Historical Society if we could help them put together a, a virtual exhibit about that story. And it's a truly astounding story every day. Uh, when I'm, I'm working on that right now, I'm, I'm writing biographies of the people who drowned. And so through ancestry, uh, I have access to a lot of 
American military records and and just stories in general that you know locally from the people um, who were involved in the rescue. Uh, there's a, an amazing amount of information there that needs to be made into a movie. That story needs to be a movie. And so, like, what are one of your favorite stories that have come from that? Or, or well, uh, that that wreck happened in February, but we know that bodies were being found in Placentia Bay, um, like right up to May and June into the spring of that year, right? And so all these fishermen were finding bodies washed ashore on beaches. And most of the men had life jackets on, so that would have kind of kept them afloat for a while. Um, but so they'd find them on a beach somewhere and they'd bring them back to their community and of course get the clergy involved. And then they'd go through their belongings and see how they could identify him. One guy got identified because his mother had embroidered his name on his underwear, on the band of his underwear, so they knew his last name and were able to figure out who he was from that. And there was another story where um, two kids were out playing on a beach near, near Buren, and it was quite a long time after, and they found a guy buried in the sand who you know had been one of the victims and so these guys were some of them were buried in St. Lawrence at the time of the disaster and then they dug them up and moved them to Argentia and buried them on the base in Argentia and now I'm finding out that years after that like five six years later they moved them again um, to sometimes to their hometown in the United States, or sometimes they just moved them to Arlington Cemetery. But the story, every one of them, you know, every one of those guys had a life and had a story, and it's amazing. So right now I'm, I'm kind of back working on that while I can. And I decided to focus on the, the people who died. Um, and I guess at some point I'd like to be able to go back and look at the people who survived. But there's there's probably more known about the survivors than there is about the uh, the people who died. And you mentioned that you grew up in a resettled community. So which community? Where were you from originally? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Spencer's Cove on Long Island in Placentia Bay. And in 1960. I was getting mixed up. What year did Kennedy die? 63 or 64? Anyway, whichever year it was, he died in November, and the next summer we moved into Arnold's Cove. And do you remember what it was like growing up? Oh, yes, I remember well. Yes. And what are some of the things that you remember from that community before you had to move into Arnold's Cove? Uh, we had no roads, you know, that was quite unusual. Well, it was only unusual when you, you know, when you went somewhere uh, where there was roads. There was no vehicles. Um, your mother didn't have to worry that you were going to get in a car and somebody was going to take you away or anything like that. So that and um, just a kind of general sense of freedom that you had that maybe you didn't really have so much anymore when you moved. And... Um 
I know you were talking about your different collections, and um, I know I've kind of gone through the archive myself a little bit. So, who can come in and use the like archive? Is it is it students of Memorial? What like who who can access that? Anybody can. Um, I guess primarily, you know, w originally the archive would have been set up uh, for uh, faculty and students at Memorial, but but then it was open to the public, and it is. If you can find a place to park, <laughs> which is not easy around here, but it's it's open to the public regular hours. And what hours are you open? We're open from nine to one and two to four, Monday to Friday. And do you guys like who comes in to research? Have you had any interesting researchers in? Uh, well, we we probably get more research inquiries by email and used to be mail. Then we do um, people actually coming through the doors, and um, you know we get probably 1,500 or so of those kinds of inquiries um, every year, and then we get whole classes of students who come to work on primary research projects um, based on archival documents as well. But um, you know, oh my gosh, over the years we've had all kinds of really interesting stories uh, of people doing research. One guy in particular in Australia was looking for, um, I think it was his great-grandfather who had been a stowaway on a schooner that he knew had come into St. George's Bay in the 1860s. And uh, the schooner was on her way from Scotland to Quebec and had like, I can't remember the exact number, but say five or six young boys on as stowaways. The youngest one was about eight years old and the oldest one was about 16. <coughs> and when the captain discovered them, they were off the coast of Newfoundland um, near St. George's Bay, but they were out and there was, you know, a, a wide band of ice and he put them off on the ice and made them walk to shore. He sort of, you know, told them which direction they needed to walk. And, you know, one of them went through the ice and drowned, and some of the others, their feet were so badly frostbitten they could never walk again. And it was a terrible, terrible, terrible story. But anyway, this man in Australia didn't know the name of the vessel, and he wasn't really sure about the year, so trying to find that was quite difficult. But it was a fairly well-known story and I had come across it before so I thought gee I suppose it couldn't be the Aaron which is you know a lot of newspaper articles written about that over the years it was and so we had the documents in the archive um, that recorded this event and we knew that there was a big court case that we could follow through in the British newspapers and anyway um, John Brand came from Australia and, um, you know, to do the research and then he went to St. George's Bay and he was able to meet people who could remember the kids on the ice and, you know, them coming ashore and being rescued and that's one of my favorite stories. And so when those kids came ashore, did they end up staying in Newfoundland? They stayed, um, it was in March and they stayed with local families until there was another vessel could come and pick them up. And then I think they were taken to Quebec and then back to Scotland. 
And um, I noted in your archive, you mentioned, or in your uh, bio, I meant to say, uh, you mentioned you were interested in women in the fishery. So what is it about women in the fishery that you're interested in or that, I guess, you guys have in the archive that's particularly interesting? Um, we have one ledger from uh, Lake and Lake in Fortune. And this really caught my eye when I was looking at it. I realized all the names in it were women, and that's quite unusual uh, for the time period. I think it was like the 1920s or so like that. And what it was was women, you know, who were working onshore while their husbands were um, involved in the bank fishery. And so, so these women were drying fish for people Probably some might have even been fish that their own husbands had caught. I don't know, um, but but it's you know a woman's name on an account and it shows all the goods that they're buying for their household and their children and that kind of thing. And I always found it interesting that you know men were gone away to sea for long periods of time and women were left home with uh, dozens of screaming children for long periods. And how did they manage? And you know what did they do? And I mean. A grand bank, for instance, probably has more widows, um, you know, from men lost to sea than, I don't know, anywhere else in Newfoundland, for sure. So those women were always of interest to me. So we, we did a joint project, another virtual exhibit, with the uh, provincial archives uh, called Coastal Women that tries to document um, the lives of some of these people. So, um, you know, we looked at a bunch of different occupations that women could have um, connected to the fishery and, and crafts and things like that, and tried to highlight some of those and tell their stories, and we had the most incredible photographs for that. And, and the photographs were from collections from all over the island. And so what was, what was the different kind of work that was, uh, I guess, exhibited or shown? Uh, I know there is a, a lot of people, a, a lot of pictures of women directly involved in the fishery. So, so there's some amazing photos of fish being spread on beaches in different communities in the island, and you'd see all these women and children in big long dresses and heavy petticoats and all that sort of stuff spreading out their fish. We also looked at the craft side, so we had information on Louise Belbin, who was a rug hooker from uh, Grand Bank, I think, and there was a woman from Labrador who had quite an interesting uh, story and really hard life, you know, from growing up at a time when there wasn't much money or anything like that, and I think her father had been a hunter, but still she was a a leading force in the community and what her life was like. And there was a woman from Greats Cove who was a musician, and so there's a piece about her, and she talked about her life and what she did for entertainment. I know you kind of have, you talked about those ledgers uh, from different communities. Yes. Um, so I guess for somebody who doesn't know what that ledger is or... or um, I, I know what you mean by yeah. talking about those ledgers, but for somebody who's not from Newfoundland or who doesn't, uh, I guess, kind of know the history of fishing in Newfoundland, what, what are those ledgers and what, what kind of materials or what kind of information are in those? Okay. We collect business records from Newfoundland fishery supply companies, and we probably have 
about, I don't know, 120 different collections of records in, in that sort of area. And they're mostly from, you know, the late 1900s up to about 1950. That's the period they cover. Before Confederation, most of them would have been. And so at that time, um, uh, the merchant in the community would have sold goods to the people who lived there in exchange for their fish. That was a pretty standard practice. And the ledger would be the record where that was documented. So, you know, you as Tara would come into the store and you'd get a pound of butter and some sugar and some flour for your mom and that would get written down. And at the end of the month then it would be tallied how much money you owed and then um, your dad hopefully would have a good season fishing and he'd come in and bring his fish in to the merchant and it would be um, weighed and valued and and that would go then against the money you owed on your account and hopefully at the end of the year it would all balance. I just think it's interesting, um, you know, in today's economy to think about the fact that there was not really so much of a cash economy. It was just a, a yeah. barter system. Yeah, no money changed hands. I don't know. I, you know, there obviously was a small amount of currency, but but not not like now. No. And you mentioned the the uh, trucks and, and Pollocks uh, disaster, but I know there's probably many more. Uh, I guess, shipping accidents and disasters that you guys have in your archive. Are there any other ones that kind of stand out? You know, there's all kinds of really interesting ones. We have a number, <coughs> excuse me, of shipwreck databases, so they tie in really nicely with the, with the crew agreement records and with other documents that we have. Another kind of famous one from the West Coast, it was a coastal boat called the Ethy, and uh, she got wrecked in the winter uh, up on the northern peninsula and there is a story that says that there was a Newfoundland dog involved in the rescue and the Newfoundland dog supposedly swam from the shore out to the boat and helped carry people in. I don't know if that's true or not. I think it's a great story. Um, we've never been able to document it although it is written up in the newspaper accounts of the time and and I think the other thing they did in that rescue was was set up some kind of a chair, like a bosun's chair, on a wire. And so you'd sit in the chair and they'd haul you in and that kind of thing, because she was wrecked fairly fairly close to shore. I think the Florizel is a fascinating story, you know, the, the, the seal hunt disasters. Newfoundland, no shortage of disasters to study. The caribou. Was another really interesting, was again a wartime disaster, but most communities in Newfoundland would know of somebody who was lost on the caribou when she was torpedoed. You know, so that's a family story that gets carried down through. Always, there's always new stories in archives, that's the great thing about it. Every day is a new story. And I guess in connection to the different wars, do you have material that relate to the First and Second World War? Mm, well, we do have some, uh, probably more for the First World War than the Second. When, when the crew agreements were being transferred from the National Archives to Memorial, um, they did make the decision in the 1970s that they would keep the records 
covering the Second World War because they figured um, a lot of people would be looking for proof of service uh, for pension eligibility. So we have the records from uh, when, when they started in the beginning in 1863 up to 1938 and then the, the British government still has 1939 to 1950. So we, we don't have those kinds of records for the Second World War. But we do have, well, student papers would have a lot of information about the war in, in communities. Uh, we have newspapers for that period. And um, John Cardolis, who was a local author, wrote two books about the Americans in Newfoundland during the Second World War. And we have his papers. So there's a, you know, he had gathered together a lot of photographs and a lot of information about the different bases and things like that. So we have those as well. For the First World War, we do have crew agreements for, for some vessels for that period. Um, and we also have records. We had records from A.H. Murray and Company. A.H. Murray and Company at one point owned the HMS Calypso. So with the A.H. Murray and Company records came the, and, and the Calypso was used as a training vessel for the uh, Naval Reserve in the First World War. So we have training registers that were left on board the Calypso that ended up in with the Murray records, uh, drill registers and things like that. Um, those are all digitized actually and on our, used to be on the DAI and I guess they'll come back again at the end of August. Um, and the other thing, we have a fair number of diaries. In A lot of our business collections will have diaries, and since they cover the First World War period, you're likely to find information about what's happening in that community with regards to the war in the diaries. And we're kind of coming to a close here. Are there any, um, are there any stories that you feel uh, should be told, or is there anything that stands out at the archive that you, that you haven't mentioned that you'd like to mention? Oh, uh, so many more stories from shipwrecks that could be told. You know, things like we, we were looking at crew agreements for Newfoundland coastal vessels um, and noticed that a lot of the men were all giving the same street addresses in St. John's as their home and thinking, that's unusual. Those were not big houses. We knew where they were. They were downtown. And, and then all of a sudden we realized they were boarding houses. So I, I think it would be a really interesting project to go and look at all these boarding houses in St. John's, where they were. And I suspect what you'd find is that people from particular areas would stay in, you know, they'd have their special boarding houses they'd stay in. And just the stories from the boarding houses, I think, would be fascinating to collect. So is that a future project for oh, you? Oh, you never know. <laughs> We'd like to get a graduate student who'd kind of work on that. It'd be a great thing to do. All right, so you mentioned you had one more story that you just had to tell. Well, um, Madeline Mant, who's the, the um, Banting Fellow uh, Award person for Memorial, is, uh, I think, doing really interesting research. She looked at 
medical records for sailors who were injured or died on board vessels that came into St. John's Harbor. So these would be people who, um, you know, they had to be met with a medical examiner when they came in. They were, you know, either as a corpse or as a person who was admitted to a hospital. So those records um, in the first part of the 20th century and so she's looking at the medical records and then she's coming back to us to look at what the actual documents record about their injuries or their illnesses to see if she can match them up and see if they are telling the same story or one verifies the other story and um, she's having great success which is amazing you know because these are um, would not be Newfoundlanders, they'd be people on British or foreign vessels, and so to try and trace those is a little bit more difficult, but um, she's, she's having really good luck finding the information. And surprisingly, I think the information in the crew agreement document does very often match what's in the medical. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our Heritage Broadcast Assistant is Natalie Dignam in partnership with the Conservation Corps Newfoundland and Labrador ECHO Program. We would love to know what you think of the show. If you have a question or a suggestion for a future program, leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page, email livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com, or tweet us at HFNLCA. Thanks for listening.